The Old Testament reading is chapter 3 of the book of Habakkuk, and it is found on page 935 in the Pew Bibles. Habakkuk is not a well-understood prophet, and although I'm not good at sports metaphors, as a few of you know, Israel at this time was always two places out of last place in the world stage, and they're trying to deal with that. <clears throat> a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shiglionoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. Do I fear? In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Parah. Salah. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth, he looked and shook the nations, then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low, his were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction, the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers? Or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows, Silah. You split the earth with rivers, the mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on, the deep gave forth its voice, it lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from, neck, from thigh to neck. Salah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut out from the fold, and there will be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to share a stanza of a poem that I
freaked me out. I'm going to read it. It's in the middle of the poem, so, so I'm going to read it as if I had been reading the whole poem, kind of give it that, that sense. Presently my soul grew stronger, hesitating then no longer. Sir, said I, or madam, truly your forgiveness I implore. But the fact is I was napping, and so gently you came rapping, and so faintly you came tapping, tapping at my chamber door, that I scarce was sure I heard you. Here I opened wide the door. Darkness there. And nothing more. Anybody want to guess what that was from? The Raven by Edgar Allan Poe. And we learned about that in middle school. Um, and, you know, my English teacher liked freaking us out. And um, so he, he, he made it, you know, he, he gave us all of the background of the, of the poem. The poem was by Edgar Allan Poe, who is a very, like, you know, just terrible things happened to him his whole life. Everybody around him died. This, song, this poem was about... His dead wife, Lenore, um, who he, he, you know, he came, made a pseudonym for, um, and he called her Lenore in this poem. And all of his life, he had struggle, and bad things happened to him, and he had his own sins, and he was an alcoholic. All, all these things went into this, and in this poem, my English teacher made sure we knew, when, when it says... He opened up the chamber door and there's darkness there, nothing more. That was Poe's way of saying he looked out into um, death and what happens after this and what there is out there that we can't see. And he didn't see God. He didn't see anything bad or good. He just saw darkness. And Edgar Allan Poe died and he died bad um, and mysteriously, just like he kind of lived. Um, but he had this sense within his poetry that he was just like, he was a cynical man. And because of his struggles, he was bitter. And he lived with a, a cynicism. And this just, I'm not going to believe in a God. I've struggled so much. He died cynical and bitter and not believing in God. Darkness there and nothing more. And on that super cheery note... We're in the book of Habakkuk today, and we're going to compare another poem by a different man who also struggled, and we're going to look and compare and contrast them. I'm excited we're in the book of Habakkuk, and it's not just because I like saying the name Habakkuk, which I definitely do. Um, I haven't heard this preached on a lot, but I, I find this to be one of the most beautiful books in the Bible. Um, it's known to be one of the, in terms of its literary quality, it's, it's one of the most poetically beautiful books in the Bible. You can kind of hear that when, when Vic was reading our passage today. Um, but that might be a little bit surprising if you know what the content is about. And this might feel like an especially weird book to preach on when we're in the season of Advent, looking at Christmas. What, is, what in the world does this guy have to do with Advent, baby Jesus? I was actually wondering that myself, honestly, before I really dove into this. Um, and it actually reminds me of a m moment at the concert last night. If you were there, awesome concert. It was very beautiful. Um, the first song was Psalm, it was based on Psalm 130. And I'm probably going to misquote Mike here, but it was, uh, he, he, he came up after the song and he said something like, well, that, you know, that may not have seemed like a Christmassy song, but it was very much about Advent. 
because, you know, even if it sounded like it was on the darker side and it's full of this angsty waiting, because of that, it hits the notes of Advent. And I'm going to hit on this more later, but this chapter in Habakkuk is actually a song. And Habakkuk's song here is one that also hits all the notes of Advent, waiting and rejoicing and expectant longing. We're in the series we're calling Longing for a Snake Crusher, where we've been walking through the Bible and we're seeing that it's one true story of how God is bringing us a snake crusher. So first we were with Adam and Eve in the garden. God made us at home to be with him. The snake entered in. And then we believed him and that messed everything up. And so God, through history, continued to pursue us. He called Abraham. We talked about Abraham to believe in him. And he made a promise to his family. He met Moses and he gave him his name, Yahweh. And he called him to trust in him for what he was about to do with the Exodus. And then in the promised land, Moses leads them to where we later find David, the king God promised, whose throne would never end. And even through David's sins, the people of God were looking pretty good at that point. They had the promised land, the king that God called was on the throne, they were united, they had relative, you know, they had some battles and wars, but they, were, they had relative peace during that time and prosperity. The story as God promised it was looking pretty good. If you were a Jew around that time, you might have been thinking, man, you know, God promised Genesis 3.15, God promised us a snake crusher, and things have just gotten better and better for us, so, you know, that might just be a couple years away. And then that's the end of the story, and we live with God forever. That doesn't happen. Things get worse after Solomon, David's son, left the throne. The kingdom was divided. The northern half uh, left God pretty quickly, turned to idolatry, and in judgment, they were taken over and exiled. No more. And then the southern half wasn't looking very good either, and that's where Habakkuk is. That's where we are with Habakkuk today. Habakkuk is a prophet we know very little of outside this book. He lives in a very hard time. As Vic alluded to in Israel's history, he faces evil and suffering from both in and outside his country. Inside his country, from those who were supposed to be God's people, at this time we know there was rampant idolatry, there was rampant injustice, the poor were being abused, um, there were false prophets, there were terrible kings, and people were turning from the Lord. And outside of Israel, the mighty kingdom of Babylon is threatening on the horizon of their little country. And so Habakkuk is writing, not as a rebuke of Babylon or the rebellious people in Israel, but to the faithful. What's going on, God? Where are you? You told us the story. You promised us a snake crusher. Because of that, you promised to grow Abraham's family, and you gave your name to your people through Moses, and you led them out of Egypt into the promised land, and you promised David that his throne would... Last forever, and now here we are. Your temple's compromised. Your government is compromised. Your people are compromised, and Babylon is at the gates. You said you send a snake crusher, but it feels like the snake is crushing us and biting us. I don't have to do too much work here to compare that to our situation today, do I? I mean, in many ways, at least for us sitting here, it might not be that dramatic, but the snake and the effects of the curse seem pretty apparent in many of the same ways as they were in Habakkuk's day. Inside the church, the West is, the, the church in the West at least, maybe not Africa and Asia, but in the West it's largely hemorrhaging. People, institutions are falling. It's not entirely, but largely due to the sins and compromises and abuses inside the church. 
We have dechurching and deconstruction. Those are words now. Outside we see, outside the church, we see violence and we see bloodshed in Israel and Gaza and Ukraine. We also see violence and injustice in our own city. I feel like I've had a few conversations with people recently that are thinking about moving outside, out of the city just because of how violent and all of the injustice that, that happens here. And that doesn't even get, that's all on a communal level, right? That doesn't even get to the suffering that we face in our own lives on individual levels. To kind of make an unfortunate twist on the Francis Schaeffer quote, in our world and in our lives, the snake is here. And he is not silent. He's active. He's biting. So the question is, how do we get through? How do we get through? We know that suffering can make people become bitter and cynical, just like I mentioned with Edgar Allan Poe. But we also know it doesn't have to. We all know people who have been through the ringer and they come out beautiful and awesome and trusting the Lord because of it. Tim Keller said about Habakkuk, um, he said Habakkuk is more real than religious people tend to be and more faithful than secular people tend to be. He isn't fake. He doesn't ignore the problems, but he stays with the Lord. And he has, as we can see at the end, joy. I think Habakkuk can give us a path away from cynicism and bitterness and towards beauty and joy. Even though this book has a lot of hard stuff in it, his song ends with the only verses many of us have heard from this book, verses 17 and 18. Even though the fig tree does not bud, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. He ends with joy, not after the suffering, but in the face of it. He resolves himself to joy in God, not after the suffering, not just after the suffering, and not just before the suffering, but in the middle of it. He resolves himself to joy while the snake is biting. And he's feeling the full weight of the curse bared down on his life. That's when he says, yeah, I'm going to rejoice in God. How does he get there? I think we get a good clue from his name. So Habakkuk uh, meant both. It was kind of a, it it has multiple, it could be used in multiple ways. One way that the word Habakkuk could be used is wrestling. It's wrestling. It's wrestling with these things. He's wrestling with God. The other meaning of it, you, you can kind of see how these are related, embracing. It also means embrace, like a tight embrace. And that's where he ends, with a tight embrace of the Lord. And those are the two postures that we see Habakkuk taking toward God in the midst of his suffering, in reaction to his suffering. And that's how we're going to see Habakkuk answer this. So first, let's talk about Habakkuk wrestling with God. I'm just going to walk through. We're, we're, we're kind of going through the whole book. It's a very short book. I'm just going to kind of overview chapters 1 and 2 as a whole here. Basically, um, it's kind of cool. Uh, it starts off with Habakkuk's complaint. If you want to tr- flip to chapter 1, that would probably be helpful. It starts off with a complaint, and then God answers him, and then complaint, and then God answers him. And then we have Habakkuk 3. Um, so if we look at the first four verses here, he says, O Lord, this is verse 2, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? This is about Habakkuk's own country, the injustice that he sees in his own country. The kings who God called to rule and direct people to the Lord were corrupt and idolatrous. There were also false prophets at that time. How long, O Lord? 
And what's cool about Habakkuk is that, uh, you know, since he's a prophet, God, God answers him directly. He actually talks to him directly. And so we get this back and forth in Habakkuk. So God says, it's, it's God's reply in verses 5 and 6. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, which is another word for the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings, not their own. He's saying, here's how I'm going to solve your problem, Habakkuk. I'm going to send Babylon and they're going to smush you. And his response is kind of understandable. What kind of answer is that, God? How does that help me? They're wicked too, and they're going to crush the righteous too. So what, what gives here, God? So later we see God, this in chapter 2, God answers him again. I will bring justice on the Babylonians too. I'll work justice in the end. So you can see this kind of back and forth, like a wrestling match between Habakkuk and God. Some people have a, have a problem with this word that's used here, or at least it makes it confusing for some people to have this word complain here to describe what Habakkuk is doing with God they maybe say we you know maybe we should call it or interpret it as something else because complaining is a sin right we know that from Exodus where you know God had just freed his people and then they start grumbling and they actually use the word complaining in there so I think these are two fundamentally different forms of complaining, like complaining as a sin and what they did after the exodus versus complaining like Habakkuk is doing here. I'd, I'd put it like this. I think one way is complaining with your back away from God, and one way is complaining with your face toward God. Complaining with your back to God is complaining against him. Complaining with your face to him is complaining to him. Complaining with your back toward God, I'm not going to do that every time because you'll, you know, get tired of that. Complaining with your back toward God is holding God to your standards that you and your name came up with and what you think he should be doing at the moment. But complaining with your face toward God is holding God to his own standards and what he has shown himself to be for us. And that's what Habakkuk does. That's the kind of complaining Habakkuk does. He says, remember God. Remember what you told us. Remember, God gave his name, Yahweh, to Moses, and his very name means faithfulness, grounded in his past actions. As I was to your fathers, so I am to you. And that's what gave Moses the strength in the face of Pharaoh to lead God's people into, out of Egypt in the Exodus. And here, but here in the face of suffering, Habakkuk is holding God to it. He says, God, this is what you said. Looking back in chapter 1, he calls on the name of God. That's the first thing he says in verse 2, chapter 1. Oh, Yahweh, I'm calling you by your covenant name that you gave us. And you said you were a God of righteousness and justice. You said, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God, of, a God merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love. But where are you? You said you are a God who will by no means clear the guilty and that you care about justice. You care about righteousness, and yet it goes perverted in Israel right now. And God tells them he's sending the Babylonians. And then in uh, verse 13 in chapter 1, he says, Why do you look idly at traitors and remain silent with the wicked when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? He isn't complaining with his back to God. He's complaining facing God and saying, 
God, act according to what you've already told us and shown yourself to be. If this back and forth wrestling with God makes you kind of uncomfortable, let me remind you that Yahweh has a long history of bringing himself to look low enough to be wrestled with. We see this with the very guy who the whole nation of God's people is named after, Abraham's grandson Jacob. He was a shifty guy. His name literally means he cheats. You wouldn't trust him to hold your lunchbox. He was in a period of deep worry and suffering in his life, largely due to his, to his own actions. And he was, a, he was alone, about to face his brother, who he thought might try to kill him. And in a crazy turn of events, God actually physically wrestles with him and takes out his hip and renames him Israel, which means strives, or you could say wrestles, with God. God doesn't hide the fact that he looks low enough to be wrestled with, to be hit. He can take your suffering. He can take your complaints. In fact, I think that with God giving us psalms of lament and books like Habakkuk, he's actually inviting that. And that's actually, in a weird way, a part of worship. But if you want to make it through to the part, to the kind of rejoicing that Habakkuk does in the midst of suffering, if you need to complain and wrestle in your suffering, do it facing toward God rather than with your back to him. And remind him of his name and who he is. So if you're reading this book, which doesn't take long, by the way, you get to the end of chapter 2 and you're probably coming up with more complaints. Like I am in my mind, okay, so you just said this, God, let me, uh, let me spitball some things back to you. Well, what about the country that, you know, punishes Babylon? Are you going to punish them and just keep punishing countries over and over? What about the people that will live and die and never see the justice you're talking about, God? What about, and on and on and on. You could just keep going, right? And that's how you'd expect chapter 3 to start, with a new complaint. But it doesn't. It starts with a prayer. Chapter 3, he, he ends his book with a prayer, poem, song of his faith and trust. Because there does come a time when God, like he did with Jacob, pokes the hip socket and reminds you of who he is. And you walk away with a limp, but the wrestling gives way to embracing. But that can be a hard switch, right? Like going from wrestling, where you're, you're grappling with God, to embracing. So how do we do that? Aside from just, you know, wrestling with God the way Habakkuk does, how do we make the switch from wrestling with God in our suffering to embracing God in our suffering? I think Habakkuk gives us two clues here. One is be quiet. Be silent. We take the posture of silence and waiting on the Lord. This is actually a really big theme in Habakkuk. After he gives his second complaint, Habakkuk says in chapter 2, verse 1, I will take my stand at the watch post and station myself on a tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer after that complaint. Then God, in his response, looking in chapter 2, verse 3, Tells Habakkuk that if the answer seems slow, wait for it. It'll surely come. And that's connected with the verse that you probably heard of in the New Testament. The righteous shall live by faith. Part of that means waiting on God. And then finally, God ends his second answer in chapter 2 verse 20 saying, Yahweh is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. So the first clue 
from how to move from wrestling to embracing is to sit with Habakkuk on the watchtower in silent trust that we'll see God move. And the second answer, or the second clue that we have to how to go from wrestling to embracing sounds kind of contradictory to the first point, but it's actually not. The second clue is sing. Out of the watchtower silence, waiting on the Lord, sing. You see in chapter 3, verse 1, it says, um, it has that kind of weird, weird word there, according to Shiganoth, which we also see in the Psalms. We see that kind of pattern in the Psalms, but the exact words according to Shiganoth is in Psalms, uh, in Psalm 7-1. So that could mean according to the tune of, you know, the song that was known, Shiganoth, you know, it would have been like a sixth century bop, everybody would have known it, so when you read the words, you would know how to like sing it, could mean that, or it could be the type of psalm, um, because this, this word could be actually related to the word that means lament. And then we see, you see Selah um, on the side of your uh, scripture passages over here in Habakkuk 3, it indicates it's kind of like a psalm where we see the Selah at the side where it's, it's kind of like a musical notation. And at the end, very end, it says to the choir master with stringed instruments. So Habakkuk wrote this with other people in mind. He meant this to be sung in a corporate communal group of God's people. God inspired this, and Habakkuk wrote this so that when Babylon came crashing down the doors, God's people would have something to sing and worship to God together. I think that's kind of crazy. Like, God actually inspires these songs. He puts songs on the lips of his people. When you're suffering and just trying to make that move from wrestling to embrace songs and worshipful art, not trying to get brownie points with Nancy Hughes, wherever she is, but, um, you know, uh, I, I think these things are helpful for us. God wired us that way. They're important in bringing us out of ourselves and to God in community in the midst of our suffering. Think of Christmas music. The music of the season kind of shows the extremes that people feel during the season, doesn't it? This can kind of be a time of deep joy and also deep suffering, for a lot of people and a lot of times those are intermingled together on the one hand you've got like mariah carey right and you know the joyful ones on the on the christian side as well joy to the world but in a lot of our songs there's a somberness last week there was um an article in the atlantic uh called the dark side of christmas music and it was talking about this and how even in the songs that are performed cheerfully the the harmony is actually pretty dark a lot of our Christmas songs were written for people in times of deep suffering. Do You Hear What I Hear was written during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And this shaped, it was shaped by the fear of nuclear war. I'll Be Home for Christmas was really resonant for people in World War II where soldiers were dreaming about home. My favorite uh, Christmas hymn is I heard, the, I heard the Bells on Christmas Day. Um, and that was written in 1863 by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, um, who heard Christmas bells during the Civil War. And it starts out with a despairing, hate is strong that mocks the song of peace on earth and goodwill to men. I actually like that some churches have blue Christmas services, uh, uh, blue, um, blue Christmas concert services around this time of year. And even our own 
concert last night, which was awesome, included some slower, contemplative, waiting music, singing together. Not just cheery, upbeat songs, even though those have an awesome place and we should sing those too. But those songs of suffering can help us move from wrestling to embrace together. And so Habakkuk gives us one. He gives us a song for when the story goes south. When there's injustice inside. When there's threats from outside. When the curse is sharply felt. This is a song for snake bites. And what does the song here that Vic read consist of? Pretty simply, when Habakkuk was wrestling with God, remember, he reminded God of who he is and what he's done. Who he's shown himself to be. And in this prayer, Habakkuk is praying to God, but he's also reminding himself. And reminding other people who would be singing this. Who God is. God's name. And who he's shown himself to be. He starts out with Yahweh. This is in chapter 3. Yahweh, I've heard the report of you and your work. Oh, Yahweh, I fear. And then he says, in the midst of the years, revive it. What does that mean? That means... It's been a long time. God, do it again. Do what again? When he says, Taman and Mount Paran there in the beginning of chapter 3 is referring to the path of Exodus that God used to bring the people out of Egypt. And he mentions plagues and parting the waters. And he's saying, do it again, God. Do it again. He reminds himself of that. So what does this mean for us? What would this song look like for us? Well, about six centuries later, there was a girl who also sang a song of joy in the midst of suffering and uncertainty, reminding who God is and rejoicing in the Lord, magnifying the Lord. And she gave birth to the Son of God, Jesus, who, as foreshadowed by Jacob and Habakkuk, was Yahweh saves. There was a point in Jesus' ministry where his disciples went out, and they were doing all these awesome things, right? They were, they were uh, casting out demons in his name, and they came back to Jesus, and they were... They were hyped about it. They were rejoicing. And Jesus says, don't rejoice in that. Rejoice that your names are engraved in the book of life. In those days, engravings a lot of times were done for accomplishments. They were markers of status and success. They were kind of like engraved trophies and plaques that we have today. Jesus isn't saying don't be happy in those things. Or don't be happy when good stuff happens to you. But Jesus is saying, if your ultimate joy, what you're holding on to, is your wins, then your losses are going to crush you. Lecrae, a Grammy-winning award, uh, a Grammy award-winning uh, rapper who's a Christian, he said he, he struggled with kind of just doing stuff so other people like him. And he said, if you live for their acceptance, you'll die from their rejection. Joy is based in your, if a joy is based in your performance, then your joy is only one Babylon away from destruction. Rejoice in another performance, that your names are written in the book of life. And how are they written there? And Jesus is saying, because of my performance. Jesus is God coming low enough to be wrestled with and hit. And in the bleakest moment, in a way the greatest injustice when God's people left him at the worst time, Jesus died and bore the wrath for us and our sins. And in that moment, God, God's mercy and justice met. And God remembered his name. And he led a final and forever exodus, not out of Egypt, but sin. 
and death, crushing the head of the snake. And that's what we can sing about to each other. Even though Habakkuk couldn't see it, the geopolitical strife that he faced, um, God used mightily. This is kind of my own inference from the scriptures and history, um, but I, don't, I also don't believe in coincidence. Babel, so here's kind of an overview of what happened, and I'm oversimplifying a little bit, but Babylon took over Judah, um, and that probably happened within Habakkuk's lifetime. And then Persia took over Babylon, and then they let God's people go home. And that's where Jesus was born, in Israel, because God's people got to go home. So God's people were all there together. And um, Greece and Rome took over after that. And so when Jesus resurrected and then he, said, he gave us the Great Commission, he said, go and make disciples of all nations, there was a common language. And most of the world was connected because there were roads and there were laws that helped them and protected them as they went. So the gospel that flipped the world upside down in Acts was because of the Holy Spirit and because God had been working through all of these things that Habakkuk was worried about. He set the world up to be flipped when Jesus came. And that's, a, that's just a loosely educated kind of guessing glimpse into this part of history. And it's probably only scratching the surface. But when he, we ask about, why, why is there war right now? Why is our city violent? Why is there suffering in your life? I have no idea. But I, knew, I do know that God is working it towards Romans 8.28, that all things work for the good of those who love him. And I do know that he's working it all toward Revelation 21 and 22, where the snake is crushed finally and forever, and he wipes every tear from every face. And so amidst unbudding fig trees, we set ourselves to rejoice. We remember his salvation. We look forward to his coming. In our suffering, we rejoice in God, even while lamenting our circumstances. And we pre-rejoice. We pre-rejoice in what God will do. In our joy, in, in the hymn, Joy to the World, which we're going to sing, we have a current joy, but we're also rejoicing in what God will do. He's going to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. And then we can find ourselves on the watchtower with Habakkuk. If you want to read this with me just one more time because it's beautiful. Habakkuk 3 verses uh, 17 to 18. Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Pray with me. God, remind us of that salvation today and give us joy in it, even amidst all of the things that we've got going on, all of the sufferings, both big and small, that you care about. Grant us the kind of joy, not in our circumstances maybe, but in you in the midst of our circumstances, God. Help us with that. Amen.